turn in our Bibles this morning uh, to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. If you're with us this morning and you don't <clears throat> have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and uh, if you just wave your hand to them, they'll put a Bible in your hand. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you. Uh, today. Also related to the trip to Israel, those flyers are available out in the fellowship hall at the information counter afterwards if you want to uh, grab one. As you hold your place there in Romans uh, chapter 12, I'd like you to go left in your Bible uh, to the book of 2 Kings chapter 13, and I want to read a small passage there as well. Second Kings chapter 13. beginning in verse 14. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. And then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, O oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. And so he took himself a bow and some arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. And so he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands, <clears throat> excuse me, then on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window. And he opened it. And then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek until you have destroyed them. And then he said, take the arrows, and so Joash took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. And so he struck the ground three times and stopped. And the man of God was very angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Israel, uh, Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. And then Elisha died, and they buried him. Now, Romans chapter 12 Verse 11, not lagging in spirit, Paul says, fervent in, uh, not lagging in diligence rather, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. We won't get to all three this morning, just the first two. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, the incredible privilege of being able to hold a Bible in our hands and to be able to receive instruction that has never left us ashamed or disappointed in heeding and obeying. Thank you for your concern for our lives and thank you for your desire to speak into our lives. And we thank you for these verses that constitute the surest way to understand your will and your wisdom and what it is that you want to speak to us. And we pray that you would take these two exhortations of of chapter 12, verse 11, and that you would make them by your Holy Spirit something that comes straight from your throne and right into our relationship with you and right into uh, this room, Lord, and help us to hear in that way by your Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Having concluded chapters 1 through 11, the section of Romans that is uh, deeply theological as we have studied it, Paul then moves in chapters 12 through 16 into a, what is a, a very, very uh, practical part of 
the book of Romans. And he begins this practical uh, call, uh, speaking into our lives about the practical implications of the theology of chapters 1 through 12 by calling upon us as Christians to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, uh, acceptable to God, and declared that to be a reasonable uh, service. This, of course, as we've seen, raises the question, and that is, great, you've told me that I need to present my body as a living sacrifice, but practically, what in the world does that look like? I can't get my mind around it without God helping me a little bit. And God does more than help us. He defines what the life of a living sacrifice in the life of a Christian will look like in the remainder of the book. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, all the way through, certainly through uh, chapter uh, 15. And in, chapter, in, in verses 9 through 16 of Romans chapter 12, it's important to remember that these exhortations that Paul gives us here, something like 22 of them, uh, when he gives these exhortations to us as Christians, there's a context for them. He is describing uh, the, how we are to interact with one another as Christians. It certainly has application for how we interact with the world and people that don't uh, know the Lord yet, but specifically it's designed to tell us how uh, a living Christian who is a living sacrifice now views other Christians and then interacts with other Christians. And he tells us, as we continue to look at these in verse 11, uh, he tells us that we're not to be lagging in diligence. Uh, one translation puts it, in diligence, not lagging. The word diligent in the original language, it means eager, uh, do quickly, do one's best. Uh, lagging is on the other side of the spectrum. It means to be lazy or lacking ambition. And Paul is saying uh, to us here, and, it, and the entire Bible speaks to the same thing, is that no Christian is ever to be uh, lazy or to be unfaithful in terms of our responsibilities. We are never to be lazy and, and irresponsible in any uh, context that we find ourselves in whether it's in a workplace or whether it's in uh, some other commitment we've made with the world or with a, a non-Christian, and nor are we to uh, have that attitude in, in our dealings with one another as Christians. In any context, in terms of the condemnation of laziness among people and certainly among Christians, the Bible condemns laziness from one end to the other. Uh, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4, He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. Uh, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6, <clears throat> Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider his, her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer, and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O slugger? When will you rise from your sleep? A little slumber, a little sleep, a little folding of the hands to sleep, and so shall poverty come on you like a prowler, and, uh, and your need like an armed man. I, I suppose that all of us, I suppose, I don't, I, I don't have any scientific data for it, 
but all of us, I hope, in our childhood uh, spent some time in the course of a summer discovering an ant trail and then going in and getting a magnifying glass. Now, that's a bad boy uh, does that. Somebody needs to be saved. But, um, but in, in looking and seeing the ant trail and, and stooping down and watching it for some considerable length of time, and to look at the sheer industriousness of an ant. You see none of them taking a break and, you know, heading off and grabbing a cup of coffee somewhere or loungers, uh, lounge chairs provided or anything like that. They're industrious to, a, to an ant, and they're, they're a study in, in hard work. Some of the, the Proverbs that speak to uh, this kind of condemning of, of laziness in a Christian and commending uh, industriousness and diligence are very colorful. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 14. As a door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man on his uh, bed. And so a door, it swings back and forth on its hinges, but it never goes anywhere. And here you have the lazy man pictured uh, on his bed. He moves from his back to his side to his front, but he remains as in his bed. He's absolutely attached to his bed, never gets up and goes anywhere. And so he's kind of like a, a door. Makes a, There's a lot of movement, but there's no progress. Proverbs 26, verse 13. The lazy man says, there's a lion in the road. A fierce lion is in the streets. Uh, very colorful. And this speaks to how uh, clever a lazy person can be in coming up with excuses for uh, continuing in their uh, laziness and, uh, and how the, the, what links they'll go to avoid work and even with kind of wild excuses. In other words, I couldn't go to work today because who knew if I walked out the front door there might be a lion there uh, to, to, uh, to eat me. And uh, if you've ever probably owned a business or you've uh, uh, raised uh, uh, teenagers or even younger, uh, you'll recognize excuses like that. Uh, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 15. The lazy man buries his hand in the bowl, so he's at the dinner table, uh, and it wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. Now, that's lazy. Uh, that's, uh, that's somebody that doesn't care if they starve to death, uh, it, 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 they'd, rather, they'd rather starve to get death than, than repent of their laziness. And then we go into the New Testament, and Paul writes to the church of Colossae, chapter 3, verse 23, and whatever you do, this is for us as Christians, do it heartily as to the Lord and not uh, to men. Uh, it never does me any harm, at least in, in this regard, to uh, be reminded of Paul's instruction in Ephesians chapter 6 in this regard, verse 5, bond servants, we would, we would translate it kind of for our culture, employees, be obedient to those who are your masters or your bosses, according to the flesh, and do so with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Uh, it talks about doing work with eye service. I think most of us have probably been around uh, people. Hopefully we are not numbered among them, where a person is just a picture, uh, a study in activity, as long as the boss is around. 
And as soon as the boss is gone, they uh, do as little work as they possibly can to still hold on to the job. I like Dilbert. is a, a comic when I get a chance to read it. And I don't know what the name of the character is, but uh, he, uh, this is him. And, uh, and he's represented in, in this comic, very f- uh, popular comic, because obviously he's very present in, in the workforce. And he, he's never to mark, uh, mark our, our lives as Christians. And so Paul's telling us that no Christian is ever to be uh, lazy uh, or unfaithful in their responsibilities and, and ever in any context, in the world or uh, anywhere else. But you notice here, again, as we mentioned about verses 9 through 16, that this is talking specifically about our, most specifically about our relationship with one another and to one another, uh, Christian to uh, Christian. And here is the recognition that a Christian might be tempted to take advantage of a fellow Christian in, in a way that they would never dream of, taking, uh, of trying to take advantage of uh, those who are not, uh, not Christians at all. And so you have, uh, uh, if you have a Christian boss, uh, the temptation then not to work as hard for them as if you, uh, in, uh, than if you had a pagan boss that was kind of breathing down your neck uh, all day, every day. And to think about the Christian boss, well, I don't need to work as hard uh, for them. I mean, they'll be gracious and, and, uh, and, and it would look bad for them to fire uh, a Christian. But, but Paul condemns that kind of thing here and, and, and elsewhere, uh, too. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, And those who have believing masters or bosses, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. So apparently, there is this uh, lack of diligence can begin to creep into our lives as Christians, not merely in the world, which we don't want to have happen, but it can begin to creep in to our relationship with one another and our, uh, in, into our Christian service as well, where here you have a Christian who uh, treats their, uh, their ministry or their Christian service in a local church, and they, they handle it with a, a very lazy attitude about it. They're very casual about it. I mean, they're hit or miss, they do it, they don't do it, and, uh, and you can't really trust them to do what they say that they're going to do or do what they commit themselves to do. Or the kind of person who commits to something in, in the body of Christ or in a local church or Christian ministry of any kind, and they give it the leftovers uh, of their life. They just put the absolute least thought into it or uh, effort into it. And, and handle their Christian service in a way that they would never dream of doing in the workplace. They know they'd be canned immediately uh, in, in, uh, out in, in the world. But somehow, uh, what, what I would never do in the world, uh, somehow I'm free to bring a, a different attitude into the church where, and into the kingdom of God where the stakes are much higher. And, uh, and, and, and diligence is even more important. And, and all of this can get flipped on its head 
and, and a person can just begin to think in terms of serving the Lord uh, in a local church. Well, you know, in, in terms of what I do during the week, and, and it, it, that's my job. Uh, it, that's what puts food on the table, and uh, this is only something I'm doing for the church. I mean, it doesn't require the same effort, and the New Testament knows nothing at all uh, about that. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, he said, commit these things to faithful men uh, who will be able to teach others uh, also. And uh, we need to be diligent and faithful to what God has called us to. Paul is saying we need to be faithful to the commitments that we make to one another and, and in our uh, Christian service, most of which happens within uh, a, a, a local uh, church. Because no church and, and no individual, no leader in a church or anyone else has the time to track down every servant who is committed to do whatever within a church and try and stir them on to do, uh, be great in that calling or to even be faithful in that calling. And by the way, I'm not addressing a local situation at all. I'm just talking about this because it's the next thing uh, in the Bible. I think we're very extraordinary blessings of fellowship in this regard. But nobody has the time to hunt everyone down, try to motivate them, and then try and light a fire under them to keep them faithful. And there shouldn't be any requirement to do that. That, that motivation should come by the Holy Spirit in a, in a person's uh, life. And uh, no individual Christian should ever have to uh, uh, do that kind of thing concerning a commitment that a Christian has made to them in, in really in any regard. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, Paul wrote, let us do uh, good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. And so, God has gifted each one of us as Christians. He has a calling upon our life for each one of us as Christians, a place in His uh, kingdom that is a part of the edification of the body of Christ and the advancement of the gospel uh, in, in the world. But that gifting and that calling, Paul tells us, is always to be coupled with hard work. God honors hard work. He does not give fruit just on the basis of gifting, on the basis of calling, and then say it all comes out that there's no need for hard work or diligence to be a part of it. What a shabby, a characterless people we would be if everything just came to us without any kind of hard work even related to uh, the kingdom of God and spiritual things. I've always appreciated a quote uh, uh, from uh, uh, Michelangelo in this regard and uh, stuck with me and, and God brings it to my remembrance every once in a while. He wrote, he said, if people knew how hard I worked to get my mastery, it wouldn't seem so wonderful after all. And we look at Michelangelo and he just takes the, 
you know, the pencil in his hand and he makes these amazing drawings or he takes the brush in his hands and he comes up with this or a slab of marble and out comes David as if it's just all a part of uh, gifting and skill and ability and to lose sight of the sheer magnitude of hard work and diligence that is behind what it is that came out of his life and, and a, a source of frustration for him for, for people to think, uh, minimize the amount of hard work that's behind being great in any area of life, but for him in, in his area. And I would contend, I think you would agree with me, that the greatness that flows out, uh, even out of uh, great gifting, there's always, when you, see, when you see gifting, you see calling, and you see great fruit coming out of even that, always behind there is this immense amount of hard work and diligence that uh, allows those things to, uh, uh, the gifting and the calling, to have the impact that it does within the body of Christ. And almost always it's overlooked, as if it just naturally uh, happens. And then we come to the conclusion that uh, we can give God the bare bones or give Him nothing, and then He's supposed to make something out of nothing all, all of the time. And bring this as an expectation into our our Christian service. But diligence and hard work is behind all of it, even in the body of Christ. There have been a time or two uh, through the years where I've been approached by someone, uh, always uh, a man, young man, and uh, he'll come up to me and declare uh, something like this to me. Uh, Pastor, I've been fired from my last three jobs, and I think it's God's way of telling me He's called me to the ministry. Or to be a missionary. And I, and I think in my mind, if, if you think holding a job in the world is hard work and you lack the ability to do that, you won't last five minutes on the mission field. And you won't last five minutes in any demanding part of Christian ministry. I'm always looking for the first exit out of the room uh, rather than being the person that has to bring the hard news but the necessary news to such a person uh, that that's not how uh, this works. And so the importance of being diligent and uh, not lagging in diligence. He goes on and speaks about the fact that we're to be fervent in spirit as well. And he talks about, that he uses that word spirit. I've got the New King James Bible in front of me. And uh, so the, the word spirit is, the S is a lowercase. And uh, some of you will have translations perhaps where it's an uppercase where uh, the translators automatically kind of did the work for you and have indicated that this, uh, this uh, is referring to the Holy Spirit, this uh, fervency. And so, but it, when you go in, uh, through the Bible and in the New Testament, spirit can sometimes refer to uh, the human spirit as a part of, of, of man which gives us a God consciousness. That's a good definition of, of a spirit. Or uh, the attitude of the dis or the disposition of a man. This is the, the spirit that they have. That uh, man has a good spirit. That woman has a good spirit. Or the word spirit can refer to the Holy Spirit. And I, I think that a Greek scholar uh, Kenneth Wiest is helpful here. He's always helpful. 
in kind of solving the mystery for so we can apply uh, the exhortation in the way that God intends it to be applied to, to our lives. And he declares here that the presence of the definite article in the, in the Greek, in the original language that, that of in, uh, makes this point to the Holy Spirit. Uh, he declares that if, if there was an absence of the word in, if there was an absence of the article, then it would have been referring to uh, the attitude of a person. But the presence of the article makes it clear to us that he's talking about the Holy Spirit, that we're to be fervent in spirit. The word fervent there, very important to understand because we don't use it that often in our culture. But in the original language, it means to boil. It means to boil with heat. It means to be burning. The Amplified Bible puts it this way, a glow in the Spirit. Another translation has it, allow oneself to be set on fire by the Holy Spirit. And so negatively, Paul is declaring to us as Christians that we are never to be lukewarm spiritually. And if, if we were ever in any doubt concerning that, our mind immediately goes to Jesus' letter uh, to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, where he writes to this church uh, full of people that identified themselves with him, And he said to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, as Jesus describes himself. Now the message he says to them, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. And so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my uh, mouth. And here in, in that place, uh, it, this church found themselves in, in this place where they are not hot for God, they're not cold for God, uh, they're just lukewarm, and yet uh, they, they describe themselves as, as being Christians. And that's what it describes for us here. What Jesus is condemning is a lukewarm Christian experience or a lukewarm Christian life where it isn't cold, uh, but it isn't hot, and, and, uh, and, and Jesus condemns it. And I think I always incre- appreciate the uh, exhortation in this regard and the challenge to my own walk uh, with the Lord because I think that we can grow accustomed to this and accustomed to lukewarmness and uh, to be, well, you know, I'm not super on fire, but I'm not what I was. I found... And I, I think over the long haul of, of decades, I've walked with the Lord now for four decades, the long haul is to just kind of ultimately, if we're left to ourselves, we will just settle into a nice, comfortable, uh, easy Christianity. And it's a go along, get along, and, and, uh, and we will settle into lukewarmness as just a default position in our lives without something that wakes us up to the fact that this is where we will go without a conscious understanding of what the standard is to be in our lives and to not allow that uh, to happen in our, our lives. And, and uh, when Jesus declares to this church at Laodicea that because of their lukewarmness, he said, I will vomit you uh, out of my mouth. In other words, there is something about lukewarmness and a lukewarm Christian, and certainly a lukewarm church, 
that, uh, and, uh, that makes Jesus, it makes His body, it makes the body of Christ uh, sick. And I'm sure all of, in the old King James it was spew, it was very English. Vomit is a stronger word, but it's a clearer word for us. I assume most of us have vomited it sometime in our life. Here, we'll just show up. I'm just kidding. We won't start using pictures here. But uh, what happens? I mean, there is something that's been introduced into our body with food poisoning or whatever it might be, and this body, this is something that is a threat to the health of the body, and there's this violent expulsion of what is a danger to the health of the body as a whole that is being purged out of the body for the sake of the health of the body. And that's what Jesus is, is talking about here. And when he talks about vomiting them out of, out of his mouth, I mean, it's, a, it's jarring language. It's a jarring truth. There's no uh, two ways about it. But I, I'm of the opinion that it needs to be jarring. Because again, without exhortations like this, I, 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 I think that we just naturally drift into a spiritually lukewarm state and think nothing of it. We just think it's perfectly normal and this is perfectly acceptable uh, to, to God. And so to, to just stop here, even, even before we proceed a little bit further, and just to ask myself as a Christian, Am I hot, am I cold, or am I lukewarm in my relationship with God? And, and if I'm in a lukewarm condition, I'm not hot, I'm not cold, I'm just drifting along in this thing. I mean, if, if, if my life was medicine, it couldn't help anyone spiritually. If it was poison, it couldn't harm anyone. That's where I am. And to look at it and, and to just stop in the privacy of our hearts and to just stop and to allow it to examine me this morning. You know, uh, when in studying for this, this section of these exhortations from verses 9 uh, through, through 16, in I'd say over, well over half of the commentaries that I, I, I read on it, um, there, it's a very concise handling of, of these. And some of them will even uh, preface it by saying, in terms of these exhortations, well, they're also, the meaning of them is also obvious that there's really no need to spend any time on them. And so uh, they virtually uh, jump over them. But what Paul is doing with these exhortations is he is not asking us whether we know them. That's not the question. Uh, whether this is something that's a part of our uh, intellectual understanding uh, of Christianity. The intent is that it, each one of these would test my, our, your personal Christianity and what we've settled into and, and what it is as a, in contrast to what it's de, how it's described in the Bible as opposed to the one that I'm living. And then if I'm living far below that standard, then to be quick to jump out of it. And so to just realize that lukewarmness is not, that is not an acceptable uh, condition of any Christian at all. We, we've heard the phrase, you don't have to be a Christian for any length of time, but there's the phrase of, about being an on-fire Christian. And uh, I think sometimes that phrase has been so heavily used through the years that uh, we can tend to avoid it or try to describe it in some other way, or the, the phrase just kind of becomes passe. But 
The phrase is a useful one, and I don't know what can be superior to it because it is a description of exactly what Paul is calling us to here. And, and every single Christian is to be a, 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 an on-fire Christian, to be fervent for God, fervent for the uh, things of God, the kingdom of God. That's to mark every single one of us as Christians. And Paul says that is the standard. And no Christian is to live below that standard. Nobody is to uh, be convinced that that's acceptable in any way to claim to represent Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God in the world from a lukewarm state. That, that doesn't work. That doesn't work for Paul. It doesn't work for the Holy Spirit. And I need, I need to hear that. I, I, I need to hear that on a regular uh, uh, basis. Now, so often when we talk about an on-fire Christian, we immediately think, okay, I'm going to be on fire. And we think of it almost exclusively in terms of sharing our faith. And there's certainly, uh, that's an important aspect of it. But it's much larger than that. It is to live a Christian life that is so dynamic. It is so like what is in the Scriptures. It is so like the Apostle Paul. It is so like Christ. It isn't just some, some small compartment of my life. I am in relationship with the true and the living God. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is inside of me. He is my passion. He is the Lord of my life. And if you're going to come into contact with me, you are going to come into contact on some level with that from my life. It is not to hide this Christian life. It is just simply to live it as it's described in the Scriptures. That's what it means to be on fire. Not to, to put it into these subcategories that it's, it's only in sharing our faith in certain kind of settings within our life. It is to look and to say, that man, that woman is a Christian. And if you want to know what it is to run into a Christian and what a Christian is supposed to be, just run into them. And there's nothing phony about what flows out of their life at all. It's them. He consumes their life. He flows out of their life. This is who the person is. And if you get close to them, you're going to get some of that on you. That's what he's talking about. To be consumed with the miracle of what's happened within our lives as Christians and, and what God has done for us to be indwelt again by the Holy Spirit and to be on fire in this way for God to still excite us, for the truth of the Bible to still excite us, to reach the world still to excite us, to love the body of Christ in this, and to be concerned about the health of the kingdom of God in a local church still excites us. It's still a passion within our life. That's what he's talking about in, in all of this. And I think, and to have this kind of a relationship with God, it certainly puts us in very good company biblically. That's this same Greek uh, expression that Paul uses here in, in terms of fervent in spirit that is used for Apollos in uh, the New Testament in Acts chapter 18, that great orator that had such an impact in the early church described as being fervent in spirit. You have the Apostle Paul in, in uh, Philippians chapter 3 where you realize as he writes the book of Philippians, he's been a Christian 30 years. 
He hasn't fallen asleep. He's been a, he has served the Lord actively for 25 years. And, and he writes this about the present tense of his life with all those miles behind him. And he said, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many of us as are mature, have this mind. I press on, reaching forward. I press toward. That marked the Apostle Paul's life. Then you have Jesus Himself as He cleanses the temple twice, at the beginning of His public ministry and at the end of it. And as they watched him take this uh, scourge of whips and go into where the religious leaders were making a, a, a commercial enterprise of the things of God, and they're just a bunch of charlatans and thieves in religious clothing, and he drives them, not the animals, he drives the religious leaders out of the environment. And then when the disciples, they looked at it and saw this kind of zeal, in Jesus' life, it reminded them of a passage in the Old Testament, and the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. I think in the Old Testament, always in my own heart, it reminds me of this Old Testament incident between King Joash and Elisha the prophet, as we read there recorded in 2 Kings chapter 13. And because it does good things in me, I I want it to be at least sown in our hearts to maybe do something good for all of us until the day we go to be with the Lord. And here you have Elisha. And at the point of these events, he is at least 80 years old. At a time where to live to 80 was a marvel. To live to 40, 50, 60 was to be an old age in those days. To live to 80 was remarkable. And here he is at least 80 years old, and he's lying on his deathbed, and the passage tells us that he's sick with the illness with which he would die. And Joash, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, comes to visit him. And Joash is a good-for-nothing. Joash is an evil uh, king. He had no zeal for God at all. And Joash comes and he stands over Elisha as Elisha lies on his deathbed, stands right over his face, and he declares to Elisha, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And it was his way of saying what even a wicked man like him could not deny. He was communicating to Elisha that the greatness of this nation, the protection of this nation, is not its high walls, it is not its army, but is the greatest protection in Israel is people like you, people that walk with God, you who have been faithful to your prophetic ministry and been an influence for God in our midst. That's what makes this nation safe. Not what I'm over, not what I'm leading as a king. And Joash proceeded to weep over Elisha as he's lying there and dying on his his bed. And what did Elisha do in response to all of this? And what he did is fascinating to me. 
He ignored the flattery completely. Didn't give any weight to it uh, at all. And instead, with Joash, he proceeded to shoot an arrow out of his window uh, towards Syria. And, and, he, and he took and he said, Joash, come here, bring a bow and bring an arrow. And Joash took the bow, he took the arrow, he put it in his hands. Elisha takes with his, the remaining kind of strength of his life. And he, he gets himself up somehow and puts his hand around on this arm of Joash and his arm over here. And with the two of them, they let that arrow fly off to the east towards Syria. And what it communicated in ancient times was the shooting of an arrow in this way was always a challenge to war. And when someone was going to invade another nation or engage another nation in, in, in battle, they would take a bow and arrow, and they would go to the border of the land, and they would then shoot the arrow into the land that they were uh, going to go in and intended to subdue. And through Elisha, God was calling on Joash to attack the Syrians who were oppressing the land of Israel at that time. And that if he would attack Syria, that God would give Joash a victory over them. In fact, he would destroy the Syrians. And this represented an, an indescribable opportunity for Joash and for the children of, of Israel. We don't live in the United States of America. We don't live in a country where uh, one of our neighbors oppresses us or threatens us in any uh, kind of, of way. And so we don't feel the desperation of, of what's being described in that passage. Uh, we don't live in fear of our neighbors. We don't live in fear that we're going to be killed on, on any given week or month or that everything that we own is going to be uh, taken away from us. It never even enters our mind as citizens of the United States of America. But that was the daily portion of the northern kingdom of Israel at that time. And here is Syria. Syria is clubbing them on a regular basis, coming in, taking whatever they want, and taking the land that they want, taking what people uh, owned. And this, this was the condition that, that, they, were, uh, that they were in. I don't, you and I, as, as citizens of the United States, we don't uh, understand the emotion of having an enemy that is so present and so near that he has his boot on our neck and, and, uh, and then to be given then by God. That's the context of it. And then for God to give us an opportunity to turn that situation uh, around entirely. But even though we don't live that, we can put ourselves in some level in that place and to realize how what wonderful news this, this would be. What a tremendous opportunity was being offered to Joash. This was a dream come true. And then having done that, Elijah then called upon Joash to take the remaining arrows in the quiver that he had and to strike the ground uh, with them. And Joash proceeded to strike the ground three or four times and, and then he, he stopped. And at that point, we're told that Elisha became angry with him for this. And the word angry hardly uh, communicates what he felt and hardly communicates uh, the scene at all. 
The word anger that is used in that of Elisha there, it means literally to crack, uh, to burst out in rage, to explode in anger. And I think you have to know a little bit about Elisha to understand how extraordinary uh, this was for his life. What a provocation it would take to produce that uh, from his life. You remember Elisha, he followed uh, the prophet Elijah, the two kind of two great prophets of their, their kind in Israel's history. And Elijah and Elisha were two entirely different people. And Elijah, he was the fireman. He was the, the man of passion, a loner, very monastic, very solitary, very moody. He, he could be explosive. But Elisha on the other end of the spectrum, I mean, he was uh, comparatively quiet. He enjoyed people. He liked to be around people, very sympathetic toward people. He was compassionate uh, toward people. He'd go to people's houses and ask them how they were. He would bless their homes with uh, benedictions. He was gentle to the young prophets. And he was, as one writer describes uh, Elisha, he was the, uh, kind of a, a mother man in Israel. And yet this mother man as he lies on his deathbed, whatever is happening here in this environment before him, it causes even him to explode. And what was it that caused such a man to explode in this way? It was the same thing that so troubled Jesus about the church in Laodicea. And it was lukewarmness in God's people. And because Joash had struck the ground only three times, Elisha said, you will only strike Syria three times as opposed to utterly destroying them if you had even had the zeal to smite the ground with your arrow and quivers just five or six times and to destroy them in the way and utterly defeat Syria in the way that God desired. And Elisha understood what Joash did not understand. That is the need of the hour, given the dangers that God's people were facing, the wickedness, the oppression of, of, of Syria, all that that represented against Israel. And you put all of that together, and then you look at this offer of God to permanently, in a, for a generation, defeat the armies of, of Syria. And to be given that offer uh, uh, was the only response that would be worthy of that would be zeal, an absolute white-hot zeal. And to claim that promise and to respond to that promise in a way that involved heart, mind, soul, and strength, and yet there's none of it at all in Joash. And Joash, uh, Elisha informed him that if he'd, he'd merely struck the ground five or six times, the threat of Syria would have been eliminated. And what Joash lacked is he lacked fire when that great moment incurred in his life when it was desperately needed. And these great moments happen one, two, five, ten so often times within our lives where everything about our life, our entire legacy, will hinge on what we do in that moment and in that situation and in that decision. And God intends it always to be met 
with this kind of zeal and this kind of fire produced by the Holy Spirit within us. And this lack of fire was incomprehensible to Elisha. And here you have Elisha, picture it. I mean, when I was at the the end point before they began the treatment for me for cancer, I never knew. You think you know tired, but you don't know tired until you're there. I mean, it is, it is to be like, okay, if somebody doesn't help me, I, I die. And, and here he is in this place at the very point of death. And his body is sick, it's diseased. And yet, as he lies on that bed, his bones are still with, filled with fire for God and for the work of God. And to that king that came to lament the Elisha's physical condition to him. Elisha essentially communicates to Joash, you have come to pity me, but I pity you. And you have what I no longer have. You have your youth. You have your strength. You have your health. But you lack what will ever make those things great or will ever make them valuable. You have no fire. And what good is health and strength and youth without fire? No, you come to pity me. I pity you. And I pity the life that you will waste in your current condition. You come to lament my physical condition. I pity you and I lament your spiritual condition. And that was the message that Elisha delivered to Joash in essence, and he used his remaining strength of his life before he died to communicate this to Joash and to rebuke his lack of zeal in his life. And under the weight of Paul's exhortation here to be fervent in spirit and in the light of the zeal of Elisha, I I ask myself, And we ask ourselves individually, when was the last time I shot an arrow, even one arrow, in the direction of the enemy's camp? What part of Satan's kingdom is under siege because of my life with Christ and and my ministry and my service to the Lord? What vision do I have for these kind of things? Where am I involved in the fight? Where am I pressing the fight? And then I think very searchingly for me, what would Elisha do with my quiver of arrows? What would he do with my life, with my calling, with my spiritual gifts, if given an opportunity? And what would he do with yours? And I think about how many old saints there are who would give their right arm to once again possess youth and health and strength to have just one of the days that we can so be so prone to waste one after another for weeks and months and years and even a lifetime. And I think it's important not to wait until our deathbeds to discover the value of every week and the value of every day in life. It's been said that no virtue is safe which is not passionate. And it's absolutely true. But I would add that no Christian life is safe. And no Christian is safe 
that is not passionate, that does not have a Holy Spirit-born zeal for God and the things of God. Now again, it's important to notice that this command to be fervent in spirit is given to us individually as Christians, but is given to us in the context of our relationship with one another as Christians. In other words, every single Christian is to be an on-fire Christian. And not just for our own good. Not just for our own, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord one day within our lives. But to be that for the good of every other Christian that we come into contact with. And you think about it when you run into this kind of a Christian who's fervent in, in spirit. And when you run into that kind of a Christian, whatever their age, whatever their sex, whatever their what, and how exciting it is to run into that kind of of a Christian. It's energizing to talk with them. Sharpens us. Iron sharpening iron. It's an encouragement in our own heart to be great for God in in the same way. It stirs us in a a needed way within, within our lives. When I got saved, when I got going with the Lord back in 1980, everyone, it seemed to me, in that church, and so many were new Christians at the time, everyone, it seemed to me, was fervent in spirit. And that was the norm that I was kind of born into. And it wasn't into a lukewarm kind of environment. Again, I'm not talking about a local situation here. I'm just talking about the Bible and us individually. But because everyone was like this, and so, such a high percentage of people were like this, it never dawned on us as a young Christian to live any Christian life that was less than that or short of that. It, that that the, the other Christians, not just the Holy Spirit within us, but the other Christians around us set that standard for everyone else is an encouragement within our lives, and I consider myself rich for having that kind of heritage. And yet, how many Christians do you know? And how many Christians do I know? And I'm not talking about this body. I'm not talking about this church. I'm just talking about my interactions with the world, my interactions with Christians beyond this place. And I would venture a guess that fully, and probably way more, but I'm trying to be gracious, that fully one half of the Christians that I run into have no fire in their life at all. And I don't say it to condemn, I just say it to speak about how easy it is to drift into it. But what happens when the whole body becomes that? What happens when a whole church becomes that? What happens if we don't have passages like this that raise the standard up to keep us from drifting to the place that we will naturally drift upon our own? And this issue is a crisis within uh, the, the, the body of Christ. And to run into people, people that I run into that I knew they started walking with the Lord back when I did, and so few of them still even walking with God, 
let alone excited for God, let alone current with God, let alone serving the Lord in some area in their church, let alone even being able to enter into a spiritual conversation with them. And the numbers are so great. And I think the even more important question is to ask ourselves is whether being fervent in spirit is still true of me. Maybe it's some place that I already was once as a Christian and not there anymore. Or maybe you sit here this morning and it's entirely possible to be a Christian and say, I never knew such a thing existed. I was born, into, born again into a lukewarm environment and everyone around me was in a lukewarm environment. And this is the first time I've ever heard that that's not supposed to be normative in the body of Christ, but that this is supposed to be normative in the body of Christ. And where does this fervency of spirit that Paul talks about here come from? Where do you get a fire like Elisha's? Where do you get that kind of zeal? A zeal for God that remains ablaze into your 80s, remains ablaze through terminal illness, remains ablaze on your deathbed. Where in the world does this kind of thing come from? And it comes from the same place that it came for him. And you remember the incident in the Old Testament where the Old Testament prophet Elijah, Elisha was going to be the one who followed him, and Elijah was going to be taken up into, into heaven with a, by a fiery chariot, and he poses one final question to Elisha before he leaves. And he said to Elisha, listen, ask, what may I do for you before I'm taken away? And he asks Elisha and poses that question, I'm going. And you're going to continue on now in service to God and ask me. I'll give you whatever it is that you ask of me. And, and Elisha's response to it was immediate. He said, please let me have a double portion of your spirit upon me. And Elijah said, you've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. And, I, and what would we have expected Elisha to answer to it? Elisha says, what do you want as a help in your Christian life? What do you want as a help in your Christian ministry and in, 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 in order for you to be successful? And, and we might have expected him to say, well, I'd like a home in the city wall of, of, of Jerusalem. I'd like a nice chariot with a donkey and uh, maybe a little something for my retirement. Or, to, or that Elisha would look at Elijah and, and say, uh, listen, I'd like to be half the man of God that you are and half the man of God that you've been. I'll settle for half of your fire. I'll settle for half of your zeal. But it is not what Elisha said. And Elisha looks that fiery prophet right in the eye and he said, I want twice what you have of God. I want twice what I've seen of the Holy Spirit in your life. And I don't think that Elijah was, could ever have been prepared. There, that anyone, not even Elisha, would have come with a request like that. To ask for twice of what God had blessed him with in terms of this fire, in, in terms of, of this zeal. And the marvel of marvels, marvels is 
is that God gave it to them. And personally, uh, and the Lord Jesus Himself has made the same offer to each of us as Christians concerning that same zeal and fervency of spirit that marked Elisha's life. And he declared in Luke chapter 11, verse 9, and he said, I, said, I say to you, that's you, you're a Christian, you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it'll be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. And if a son asks bread for, uh, from uh, any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? And if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts uh, to your children, and we talk about this act, ask and the seek and the knock, and so often it's directed as if the highest thing that we can ask and seek and knock for in the Christian life is some, something that will make my life more comfortable. It's not the context that Jesus makes the promise in. And he said, you then, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And when we just come to God and say, God, maybe I know nothing about this fire. Nothing. But I want it. And I ask and I seek and I knock for this. And God will provide it to me. Or to be a Christian and to say, I know something of it. But it's a distant memory. And to realize that the solution to the problem is not, you know, give me 50 push-ups and, and uh, some chin-ups and this kind of thing and, we'll, and you, you produce it. No, it is to just come to God in prayer and say, God, I value this. And I ask you to produce it within my life. And I will not stop asking and seeking and knocking until this fire marks my life. And God will provide it to us just as he does as for his saints all the way through uh, the ages. He will do it. He will do it and be happy to do it. The Bible says that if we draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to us. That means that every single one of us has the relationship with God, the intimacy with God that we want. He'll always meet us where, where as far as we want to go in this, and the same thing is true related to the Holy Spirit. He will meet us here and He will give us the fire and the fervency that we desire if we will ask Him for it. So here we are. I'm two minutes over. I just want you to know that I know that. But I'm, I'm done. So the passage isn't a scolding. It's not a scolding at all. It isn't an accusation. I don't know your heart. I don't know anybody's heart. I just know my heart. But to just look at it, and for the person for whom fervency of spirit, the Christian for whom fervency of spirit marks your life or marks our life, this is an encouragement to you. Because we live in an age in which to live like this as a Christian is going to make you appear to be crazy, not just before the world, but at least half of the rest of the body of Christ and maybe 70% of it. And you need to be affirmed that you're not the crazy one. You're not the spiritually insane one. 
Everybody else is. And you hold on to that. And then if we sit here and we say, I am light years away from this. And I thank God for raising this standard up. And I will begin to beseech Him and beg Him for this until it marks my life. And to realize, to snap me out of that condition and to realize that He will do this within my life. So that it is good not only in reaching the world, but so the standard is set high in terms of what Christianity is really intended to be. Not only between us and God, but between us and us in this hour in human history in which God has called us to live for Him and to serve Him. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, thank You for Your truth. It's a these are simple truths that we've looked at here today. They are deep as deep can be on a practical level. And we just commend this time in your word, the truth of your word to the ongoing work of your Holy Spirit in each one of our lives, Lord. And I pray for myself and we pray for one another here today, Lord that not a single one of us at Calvary Modesto or within the voice of this church, that any of us would settle for anything less than the Christianity that we see described even now here in these two encouragements and exhortations. But to Lord, to, again, as we've prayed each time with these sermons, to, um, to reject our self-defined Christianity and culturally defined Christianity for the Christianity that we find in the Bible. And as we seek you, Lord, in this regard, in terms of zeal, we pray that you would meet us there and give us the fire that we need, Lord, not only for our own lives, but to be an influence in, among your people, Lord, and as a protection within our own life and service to you in these last days. And we pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. If you're here this morning...